Okay, so uh, last week we had uh, quite a sobering time in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David, this man who uh, the Bible calls a man after God's own heart and a man by which every king in Israel was judged. He was the standard. Really blows it like big time. At the time that the kings were supposed to be off at war, he stayed at home, let his mind wander, and uh, saw a woman bathing on top of a house nearby, asked who she was, got some big time loud alarm bells in response to the question who she was. David, she is the wife of one of your mighty men of war, and she's the granddaughter of one of your most trusted advisors, Ahithophel. But uh, by this time, his, uh, his mind is, is in a bad place. And uh, as many of us have also done, including me, he, just, he uh, sticks his head in the sand, ignores the warning signs and goes straight forward, sends for her as adultery with her. She is uh, soon after realizes she's with a child. He finds out. And then after trying to cover up the crime by having her husband go into her, into her house and having sexual relationship, uh, sexual relations with her, he fails at that. Um, he just kills him. And he has him killed. And so... Uh, a very sobering thing, and we spent a lot of time last week just trying to remember and reflect together that every single person on the hearing of that sermon last week in this is capable of the very same thing. Consider who this is. This is David. This is a, a, a man who is really, uh, in, in some respects, stands alone in scripture as, as a, a man beloved by God for his godliness. And yet he does this. And so a sobering message um, for us. So we're, we're in this, uh, we come to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 says this. It says, then the Lord sent Nathan. I should back up just a little bit. We read this last week. Uh, but it, it says that um, uh, in verse 27, the last verse of the previous chapter, it says, when her, meaning Bathsheba's mourning was over, mourning for the death of her husband, Uriah, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But then as we read last week, it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And David probably was looking around at kings of other, of other nations. Well, they do it. And certainly if they do it, I can do it. Well, you know, um, how many times have we said the same thing? Everyone else is doing it. And they're fine. But I do it and I get caught and I get whacked by the Lord. Yeah, that's because he is a faithful father. He is a faithful father, and you're a, you are a legitimate son or daughter. That's why you're disciplined. And, and so uh, why the, you know, the Lord may, may look at others, do the same thing, and may pass over immediate consequence. Uh, he doesn't do that with his children. It displeased the Lord, what David had done. And then it says in chapter 12, verse 1, then David sent, then the Lord 
sent Nathan to David. Now, Nathan was a prophet. He was also a friend of David's. He was also a friend of David's. And he came to him and said to him, so now what this is going to be um, is a confrontation. And actually, it's a wonderful thing about David that anyone even had the guts to confront him in the first place because kings at that time, they wouldn't let anyone confront him. You confront a king, you're dead. Uh, but uh, it speaks well of David that someone's willing to uh, confront him. And so it says here, uh, that uh, uh, so David co uh, Nathan comes into David and he tells him a story. Now he he presents it to him as if it were real facts because at this time in Israel the king not only was the governor of the land in terms of uh, enforcing laws and leading the army, but he was also the judge. People would bring hard cases to him. Um, hard legal cases, people, if you'd been wronged, um, if, if the case was big enough, it would go to the king. And so um, that's what Nathan does. He, he comes and presents this case to David, and it would have been a normal thing for David to hear this because this is what often happened with kings um, at the time. It says, and so David, Nathan tells David, he says, verse one, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take uh, from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, really, really, really briefly, because this has got to be the most minor point. This will be the most minor point of the whole night, um, whole evening. Interesting here that this is 3,000 years ago and that, that um, we have an example here of, of a human being having a, basically a pet in which there was a, a, a fond relationship with and that um, there was a great relationship and fondness. Um, and so uh, from time to time, you might hear that that's like some modern thing. No, God gave animals to us for among many other reasons. Um, um, there are certain animals that are domesticated like, uh, like dogs and cats in which God gave them to us as a gift. And here, this poor man, this lamb was like that. It was like many of the relationships you guys have of, with your dog or cat. And, and uh, it was just a very loving one and, uh, that he had with his sheep at the time. And, um, uh, but, um, but then there was this other guy, this rich man, um, and the rich man wanted to feed him. And what does he do? He goes and takes the poor man's one sheep, slaughters it, and gives it to the traveler. So David hears this um, in verse five, and it says his anger was greatly aroused against the man. In other words, against this rich man who stole from the poor man with one sheep when the rich man had many, 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 many sheep. David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. Now, this is a pretty amazing thing. I mean, it, it, it has been said, and it's very true, that um, we can't stand the sight uh, when the, the sin that we are most guilty of, uh, when it's on other people, and how we react with other people towards their sin um, is if, if we overreact, it's often an indication that we have a problem with the sin 
um, in our own lives. And certainly this would have been the case here. Talk about an overreaction. The law of Moses did not have the sentence of death if you stole someone's lamb. Far from it. It was nothing like that. Um, but here, David, he's overreacting. He uh, keep in mind he's been um, he 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 he's been wallowing in guilt, covering it up. Hasn't told anyone. Uh, it's been about nine months now, and um, uh, and so he wants this guy put to death. Seems crazy. Well, guilty people act in a crazy way. The next verse, verse six, and David says. He shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now, that was the law of Moses. If you stole something uh, from someone, you'd have to restore fourfold. So then Nathan speaks up his friend. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. Thus said, says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with a sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly but i will do this thing before all israel before the son verse 13 so david said to nathan i have sinned against the lord okay very famous story. Let's talk about it for a while here. A lot of stuff here to learn for our own self and our own instruction. The first thing is that we probably need to make a big deal out of is that David had waited nine months. He had an opportunity for nine months to come clean with this thing and repent. Um, it says uh, at the end of verse 27 that he had a Bathsheba bore him a son and uh, then in chapter 12 verse 1 uh, it's, it says that Nathan um, had come to him so um, it's, it's uh, so nine months um, had happened at least nine months since his sin. So he had nine months um, of lying, of covering up his sin. And the lies, you know, it has been said before, anyone who commits adultery is also a liar. And uh, it, 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 that is so incredibly true. And some of you have heard me say this before, uh, and I believe it with all my heart, having uh, counseled over the years uh, on, on more times than I would like uh, instances where adultery comes into a marriage is that, listen to me carefully, Calvary Chapel, in my experience, the lying is more damaging than the adultery itself. Let me repeat myself. 
the lying is more damaging than the adultery itself. Uh, it, so oftentimes what happens is that someone waits and waits and waits and waits until they're caught like David and then, and then they come clean with it. But the fact that they had waited so long, all that tells everyone else is you cared so little about us that you didn't come and confess to us. And the only reason you're confessing now is that you were caught you don't love us. You could care less about us. We don't trust you. And it takes years for the breach in trust to be reestablished. And that's with full repentance, of course. Um, if, however, in an instance where there is an act of adultery that soon after the person just comes clean, confesses fault, there's, there is far, 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 far less trust that has been breached and the time of restoration of relationship is much, much quicker because the... Uh, you, I mean, I mean, if, if you go on your own after being convicted by the Lord that you've sinned, you know, the person's not thinking to themselves, well, they only came to me because um, they were caught. And so, and, and how do I know that they would have ever come to me um, um, if, if they weren't caught? Everyone following with me here? It is so much better. And you may be listening to this either tonight or at some future time, and you have not come clean with your sin, would you stop it and just get out and confess? And I know it's hard. I know it's painful, but it's just going to be worse and worse, as we will see if you just wait longer and longer. The lying and the lack of trust does more damage when there has been adultery than the adultery itself. That is particularly the case when someone waits and waits and waits until, and, 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 and then only comes forward and confesses after they're caught. And so uh, it, 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 it's actually been encouraging over the years, a, a few examples where someone just, they weren't caught, they just came, they confessed, and there was just a noticeable difference of how much sooner there can be re restoration between, between them and others. And so um, waiting is a bad idea. Now in Psalm 32, in Psalm 32, uh, we read, uh, there's two Psalms at least that um, cover the period of time between David's sin and until the, you know, his repentance up to and including the time of his repentance. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Listen to this, uh, Psalm 32, which David wrote during the time he was keeping his sin silent. Listen to this, Psalm 32. Verse 3 says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. All day and night, your hand was heavy upon me, and my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So another thing that happens during a time, between the time of a t sin and a time of confession, is that you're completely on the shelf in terms of your fruitfulness with the Lord. Um, the Holy Spirit... Uh, the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit uses a man or a woman. Um, there can be a full expectation that God will use you when you get the gunk out, when you've confessed the gunk out. But I always look at it like we're vessels. The Bible uses that term for us. We're vessels of ministry. And I always think of the word vessel. I, use the, I think of the word, uh, I think of a pipe. Um, but, but unconfessed sin, what it is, is like, it's like gunk inside the pipe and, and, you know, the water doesn't get through freely. The air doesn't get through freely. And when you have this kind of unconfessed sin in your life, the pipe is all clogged up. The vessel is all clogged up. 
and um, your vitality is gone, as David says in uh, Psalm 32, 3 and 4, uh, that, that there's so much guilt, there's shame. Uh, verse 4 of Psalm 32 says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me, so um, and no one's going to, you know, no one's going to be able to be used in that time period. You're just on the shelf. There's no fruitfulness. There's no joy. There's depression. There's discouragement. Sin does all those things. Um, and, and so uh, we, we were not created and born again in order to sin. Uh, I'm reading this, uh, the, this book again for the second time called Soul Keeping. Uh, the elders read it at their elders retreat, and I'm um, reading it again with the dear brother. And uh, one of the things that it says is that the, the soul was constructed in such a way that when it sins, it begins to disintegrate, disintegrate. Uh, and so, um, and so, uh, uh, that's what happens uh, during a time of unconfessed sin. Uh, David says, my, when my bones grow old through the groaning all day long. And so that too. So real repentance involves immediate confession. Immediate confession. Not dilly-dallying around. Uh, immediate. Very important. Real Repentance. We're going to get to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11, which is the banner verse that I read. I try to read at least uh, once every three or four months at Calvary Chapel because it has to do with, with what godly repentance looks like. But before I do, just um, wanted to go over a few of the things. Now, obviously, when Nathan tells this, when Nathan tells this, uh, um, what comes off almost like a parable, a story of this rich man with many, 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 many sheep, many flocks and herds, probably thousands, and a poor man who had one. Uh, the rich man, obviously, David. The poor man, Uriah the Hittite, is married to one woman, which is, by the way, what uh, God's law was. David had violated it by multiplying wives. Uh, you notice here, um, that the poor man, it says he grew up together with his ewe lamb. It says it ate of his food, it drank his own cup, it, uh, and lay in his bosom. It, bosom. it was a daughter to him. And so this spoke to how Uriah treated his wife. It can never be said that Bathsheba did anything because Uriah uh, didn't treat her well. This is how he treated her, like uh, just um, like the man treated this you lamb with a lot of affection, with a lot of love, just taking care um, um, of her. And so um, uh, so anyway, when, they, when the rich man comes and takes this poor man's lamb, it literally was like David coming and taking Uriah's one wife. And, and so it was... Um, it was really uh, an, an, an outrageous, abominable sin. Now, we talked about last week how David's heart uh, in this one area of sexual lust, and it, it, it was, um, th this sin didn't happen overnight. It, he was taking and multiplying wives, and, and um, you know, his idea of, of controlling his lust problem was just to get a woman and make him his wife. And so that, that, that is a formula for... Uh, an eventual disaster for a train wreck uh, sometime. And so um, when Nathan confronts David, this is, this is uh, really cool. Check this out, verse 7 and 8. When he confronts David, he says, first he says, he says, you are the man. I prefer the King James Version. Thou art the man. In Calvary Chapel, why do we get into the Bible every day? Please be in the Word every day. Um, even if you don't sleep well and you have to run out of the house without reading the Bible in the morning, try to get, get it at lunch or at night. Why do we do it? Well, among other things, we, we, we put the Bible, we put it in front of us, in front of us, so it can, we can expose our heart to it, so it will say to us, thou art the man. 
thou art the woman, meaning when we're, when we, when we're lingering in some sin and, and there may be some sin we've, we've, our mind or whatever has wandered off into between our last Bible, yesterday's Bible study and today that, that God's, God knows. And, 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 and he'll say, thou art the man. That's why we open up uh, the word of God. But notice he says, um, after saying that, Nathan says to them, uh, said, it says to him, the Lord, thus says the Lord God of Israel, three things. I anointed you, I delivered you, and I gave to you. And, and every single one of you, God's done the same thing. He's anointed you, meaning he has chosen you. You didn't choose him. Jesus says in John chapter 15, God chose you. He anointed you. He delivered you. Just reading Ephesians 2 this morning about God's deliverance. He delivered us from, from sin. He's delivered you from sin. And then what does he do? He gives to you. He gave to you. He anointed, he delivered you, and he gave to you. And, and, and every time that we're tempted, these would be, uh, this would be a good thing uh, to think about. I can't do this because one, I've been anointed. Two, I've been delivered. Three, I've been given to by the Lord. And, and, and Nathan says this uh, to David, that the Lord uh, did this. I, I, he says in verse 8, I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you a house of, um, of Israel and Judah, meaning he, he now has the palace. Saul used to have the palace. Now he has. Uh, where it says there, I gave you your master's wives, that may just mean the fact that he now has a royal household. It's possible it means that Saul's concubines um, that, that were then into David's possession. I don't know. Um, I, I don't think that's what it means because um, I don't think that um, the Lord uh, uh, condones that type of thing. And that, that verse might suggest that, um, that, that the Lord might condone it. If that was the interpretation that I gave you Saul's concubines, it, it really, what, the, what it appears to be is, 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 you know, I, I gave you the Royal household. Your, the Royal household is now yours, uh, you know, with his own wives and his own servants and his own uh, uh, people in it. And then he says, and if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Calvary Chapel, would you please underline that verse? If that had been too little, I would have given you much more. That is God's heart for you. His heart is not to withhold. His heart is to give you. His heart is to give, 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 give. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, to me, the simplest illustration, although any any illustration is a crude one compared to the great reality of God is with our own kids. What parent among us doesn't just want to bless, 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 bless their kids. Now, many blessings have to be held back and uh, parents need to be cautious about how quickly they bless their kids. But just like parents have a heart to give their kids, God has a heart to give you. You're a kid. You're a kid of the king and he wants to give to you. That, um, that's what he does. If, he says to David, if, if I hadn't given you uh, uh, enough already, I would have given you uh, so much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in this sight? Verse 9. So make no mistake about it. When you and I sin, we're despising the commandment of the, uh, of the Lord. Let's Quit mincing words like, you know, we ignored it, or I know it was bad, but it wasn't the worst thing in the world. No, we despise it. We despise God's law when we sin in this manner. Then he goes on to say, you have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. What? I thought the Ammonites killed. Uh, I thought the Ammonites killed Uriah. God knows that game. Uh, and just like today, if you read the, uh, the, the, uh, the federal laws on that, a lot of them were implemented because of the mafia's control of the city and hiring hitmen. No, 
Uh, you hire a hitman, you're guilty of murder. <laughs> and, 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 you know, God's not going to be fooled by this kind of stuff. And, um, and, and so notice how he says, he doesn't mince words. You killed Uriah. He doesn't even say you had someone kill Uriah. You killed Uriah. Isn't it wonderful how bluntly honest the Lord is with us? He doesn't mince words. And so you killed Uriah with the swords. You have taken his wife to be your wife. You have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. And, um, and so then in verse 10, there are consequences that are um, there are consequences which result as a uh, because of the sin. And that's what is going to be described right here by Nathan. And there's three or four of them. It says, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. And so uh, his sons, there would be violence in his own family. His daughter would be raped by one of his sons and then that son would be killed by another son and in total there it's interesting that there were four um that david when he got all angry he said he shall restore fourfold for the lamb uh that uh, that was the law of moses but david four four sons of his wound up dying uh because of his sin the, um, the child that was conceived, uh, and then uh, Amnon, who rapes Tamar, she's going to be sin. Uh, she, he's going to be killed by Absalom. Um, Absalom is going to uh, be, you could say, um, yeah, he was, gonna, he was killed by, um, uh, by Joab. And then Adonijah, another son, uh, when he tries to usurp the throne after Solomon takes the throne, he's killed. So this, this strange kind of, uh, you could say, consequence of uh, the, the law of Moses, except heightened a hundredfold, that David has to suffer for it. So these are considerable consequences. Now, uh, the interesting thing about it, I, and circle back to those consequences, but when David says, I have sinned against the Lord, uh, Nathan then said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Uh, the, the penalty for both adultery under the law of Moses and murder was death. And here it's put away by the Lord. That's mercy. It's put away by the Lord. Um, God's going to add grace to this. We'll get into that in a little bit. But um, it's put away by the Lord. But it's important to understand that the, so God does forgive this sin. In fact, we read in Psalm 32, which was, um, which was uh, written about this very, you know, this during the same time period, it says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in who, and whose spirit there is no deceit. Someone who's come clean, they've said, yes, I'm guilty. The, 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 the sin is forgiven. So the sin is forgiven, but uh, oftentimes there's confusion on this that because the sin is uh, forgiven, there's not going to be any consequences. Now, it's true that the Lord never treats us as our sins deserve. He never does. We deserve death and hell forever, eternal torment, and uh, we don't get that. Uh, and uh, in a, aside from that, as if that's not enough, uh, the sins that we commit, we, we don't ever get what we deserve, but there are consequences. There are consequences. Uh, the, I get, just want to get back to the lying thing. I mean, when you've lied for nine months, 
there's going to be consequences in your relationships um, with the people who you lied to for a long time, possibly even years. Now, if you've been lied to by someone who has sinned against you, I'm not giving you an excuse not to forgive them and not to, uh, to begin trusting them and to begin loving them in such a way that you're not always acting out because your trust has been violated so bad. But inevitably, this is what happens many times. There's this kind of sin is that uh, when trust has been violated, a person whose trust has been violated egregiously, as in the case of adultery that has been covered up for nine or 10 months, uh, they act out <laughs> towards you if you're the one that did it to them and um, for a long time. And, and, and you know, many times I've um, been in these counseling situations where an adulterer or an adulteress is like, oh, they keep holding this against me and blah, 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 blah. You know, I get it. Um, I get it. But if you're really repentant, what you will do is say, you know something, I deserve it. I did this to myself and not be lashing out again at the very one you sinned against. I can't tell you how many times I see this, that someone is all upset and angry that, you know, she hasn't forgiven me or he hasn't forgiven me and blah, blah, blah. And they'd be just griping and complaining about the very one that they No, Instead, they should be saying, look, this is from the Lord. Uh, in, in, in a story that we're going to see at a later time with uh, Shimei, a, a man who was throwing rocks at David, and someone said, hey, do you want us to cut this guy's head off? And he said, no, could be these rocks are from the Lord to pay me for my sin. Uh, that's real repentance. We're talking tonight about real godly repentance. Real godly repentance is just having unbelievable long-suffering and patience with the one that um, you have sinned against who is now lashing back at you in one way or another. That's what it, that's what that um, godly pen, repentance uh, really looks like. But there's real, real consequences. Now, um, it says here, it, it, it says here that the, some of the consequences are the reason for the severity of the consequences. I mean, you may be listening to that. I mean, four people died because one other guy died. Yeah, and you may be thinking, uh, this is crazy. I mean, rest assure you, the, the, the judgments of the Lord are righteous altogether. But, but uh, uh, let, let me just try to explain to you a little bit. Um, notice at the beginning of 14 where uh, Nathan says to David, because of this deed that you have done, the adultery and the murder, have given great occasion of the enemies of God to blaspheme him, the child also who was born to you shall surely die. So one of the, 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 the things that sin by a Christian does is it causes people to blaspheme the name of the Lord. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say that you're witnessing to I don't have any interest in church. This person committed adultery and that person was stealing. And this, In other words, the enemies of God are blaspheming the Lord because of his own children's sin. Now, this is even more the case of a leader. And, and, and this is why I'm telling you when a pastor sins, oh no, when there's an adultery by a pastor, the ensuing consequences often look, not always, not all the time, but often look something like what we see in the life of David, just a complete, ugly disaster. I mean, I could go into um, stories of, of some of the things, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll spare you of them, but just, uh, but, but why might that be? It's because the farther you go up in leadership, the more the enemies of God blaspheme as a result of your sin. Now, it's not going to be an excuse for them on the day of judgment. No one's ever going to be able to get to before God on the day of judgment and say, oh, yeah, I never became a Christian because of all those hypocritical Christians. Ain't going to happen. 
<laughs> that's not going to happen. They're, they're accountable directly to the Lord. And, and, and so oftentimes we need to remind ourselves. We need to get our mind, our, our eyes off the pastors, off the leaders, off, off that kind of thing. And directly on Jesus Christ. He didn't do anything wrong. Uh, you know, why are you blaming uh, his, uh, their sin on him? In fact, he repeatedly in the Bible tells us all this would happen. These kind of things would happen. People would fall and, and, and stuff like that. That's what the word of God says. So, um, so I, I, I do want to, to, um, to point out in terms of this whole subject of what godly repentance really looks like. Notice David probably more than anything else that in these passages, which, which indicate true godly repentance, he doesn't argue. In other words, when David says, thou art the man, that's the King James, you are the man. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. He doesn't say, well, this woman was bathing naked across the street. He doesn't say, well, are you sure it was really the Ammonites who killed him? None of that. And, uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, it's, uh, well, l- let me explain it like this. I've had to confront many, many people over the years for sin. One of the most encouraging things that a pastor or any, any of you uh, can, can, can see is, what, is when there's real repentance. I mean, it is so encouraging to see someone who really, truly repents um, and uh, doesn't try to... And one of the things, one of the things that, that is true about real repentance, true repentance, there's no argument. Uh, there's no rationalizations. There's no, you know, I grew up and I, I, I had tough parents growing up. And, and that, true, that may be part of the cause of the sin, but it's no excuse. It's nothing that we, it, we, need, we need to take full responsibility ourselves for our sin. And David does this here. He simply says, I have sinned against the Lord. No excuses. None at all. Now, unfortunately, um, it's going to take others a lot longer to believe that this is real repentance than the Lord, the Lord, but the Lord knows the Lord gets it guys. Um, when, or, and, and gals, when, when your repentance is, is real. One of the most discouraging things for me as a pastor is confronting someone of sin and, and they begin to rationalize a very common ploy is they start accusing me of stuff uh, you know, you're not confronting me in the right way. Sometimes that's true, by the way, but doesn't mean that they didn't sin. Uh, and they start making up all kinds of excuses, their youth or this, or this really didn't happen. Sometimes they just flat out lie. And it is so discouraging uh, to me uh, when that happens. But this is uh, this is a great example of real, incur- uh, real true repentance. It's immediate, no questions, no beating around the bush, bush. At this point, although obviously it took him too long to do it, when he is first confronted, no reason to believe he was confronted earlier about this except by the Holy Spirit or by a human being. He, this was the first time. He, he immediately comes clean. Now, 2 Corinthians 7.11, I mean, I, I just can't speak about godly repentance without, um, without quoting 2 Corinthians 7.11. And uh, I mean, this is corny, but this is, you know, you could easy to remember where the verse is just by 7.11. We've all grown up with 7.11 convenience stores. Uh, and by the way, a lot, it's a misnomer. A lot of them are open 24 hours a day, but um, I've been going to those since I was a little kid. And in 2 Corinthians 7, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is describing the repentance of the Corinthians, that it had been real, godly repentance. And there is an incredibly wonderful study of what a comparison of, of godly repentance and worldly repentance, godly sorrow and worldly sorrow and oh wow have i seen before worldly sorrow uh, he he says this second corinthians chapter seven uh, 
it really begins in verse 10. Well, let's begin in verse, verse 9, middle of verse, beginning of verse 9. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. And I'm telling you, he's, it makes me rejoice too. Nothing makes me happier uh, in these counseling situations than when just someone, they repent. It's like real repentance. And uh, he says, and Paul was the same way. He says, I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner. Meaning there was godly repentance. That's what the apostle Paul says. That you might suffer loss from us and nothing. Verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, verse 11 is a definition of what um, godly sorrow looks like. But before getting there, at the end, it talks here about the sorrow of the world leads to, to death. I'm telling you that I have been in situations where people have cried over their sin. They're weeping. And I just know this is not godly repentance. It's sometimes it's they're crying over the consequences. Sometimes they're crying because they're faking it. Sometimes uh, they're, 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 you know, they're crying because, I don't know, someone is there that they feel like they need to make a show with. Uh, mostly it's because they're, they, they don't like the consequences. The majority of the time, worldly sorrow, worldly repentance, uh, they're crying because the consequences are so harrowing, so terrible that they've started to cry. But it says that kind of sorrow, verse 10 says, leads to death, uh, meaning it just leads to even worse sin. It just leads um, to, uh, to, to, to even more death working its way into relationships. Sin is all about, the consequences of sin are all about what sin does to relationships. Um, of course, it does something to us as well, but it, 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 it hurts relationships. And so it'll produce death in your relationship. Godly, if you are not repenting in a godly way, death is going to work its way in to your relationships. Verse 11, though, is a definition of godly sorrow. It says, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. So the Corinthians um, had been guilty of a sin. They had allowed a guy in his church to have sex with his mother-in-law and basically didn't do anything about it. They just uh, ignored it. Didn't have the courage to confront it. But they repented. They confronted the guy. They disfellowshipped him. And I believe, um, well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, okay, now you got to get the guy back. you got to love him. But they... They, they stopped just allowing sin in their midst and they repented. You sorrowed in a godly uh, uh, manner. Then it says in verse, continues in verse 11, what diligence it produced in you. So oftentimes uh, being repentant in a, in a godly way means actually doing stuff. You may have to pay someone back. You may have to apologize. Uh, you, and, and I'm not talking about here about you know, saying a hundred Hail Marys, Jesus says, don't do that in the Sermon on the Mount. You're, don't be like a pagan and pray with vain repetitions. As if God's not going to hear just, uh, just uh, one prayer. Um, but godly sorrow is diligence, meaning you go out and you make amends with the people that um, you've sinned against. I mean, so oftentimes some will say, oh yeah, I feel real uh, bad about this. And then Come to find out they've never, they haven't done anything uh, to, to be diligent to, to repent. And so then um, after diligent, it says, what clearing of yourself? I like that one. Um, th th that is uh, um, just confessing what you have to confess. Sometimes it's a public testimony, not always, but sometimes it's a public testimony, a clearing of yourself. Uh, but, but there's also the sense there that, you really want to get back to the place where you're walking with the Lord and you're clear of the sin. Um, I just, I remember as a young believer, just having this tremendous desire just to 
get some years behind me of the, the awful sin that I had been involved with. Just what clearing it. You want to, 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 uh, to rather than being blaspheming the enemies of God, that the enemies of God would have nothing against you, that you would be above reproach. What clearing of yourself? 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. The next thing is what indignation. And what that means is, is you call your sin for what it is. In other words, you're not saying, you know, yeah, I did this. It wasn't the worst thing in the world. No, you're, it was terrible. It was an abomination what I did. I can't believe how badly I let God down and, and, and these people down. What indignation. Again, guys, 2 Corinthians 7.11. Remember that reference. It, it's very good. Uh, it says, what fear. I like this one too. What fear. Uh, meaning, all of a sudden, you know, you, you drop back and you realize, wow, how much worse could it have been for me? As Because of the sin that I did, it could have been so much worse. The consequences could have been so much fear and and how God could have really just struck me dead. What fear? Second Corinthians 7.11. What vehement desire. And again, that's the same thing. It's just that 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 just that that longing just to to make things right, to start worshiping the Lord and to start, you know, loving and walking with God and serving God. What, what zeal, same thing, what zeal to now follow the Lord and get this thing behind you. What being vindignation. And so that's the same thing, vindic, whoa, vindication, meaning, um, so you have blasphemed the name of God. Well, you want to vindicate the name of God and so by that, you want to now go out and do the right thing. What vindication. And so here's the deal, folks. If someone has sinned in, a, in like a big time way and you talk with them about the sin, you confront them and you leave scratching your head. And I can tell you this from so much experience. Uh, yeah, I really don't know if that person's repented. They kind of said... They were sorry, so maybe they did, and they kind of didn't, so maybe they didn't. Listen, just by the fact you're saying those things, they didn't repent. Because if there's anything true about 2 Corinthians 7-11 repentance, it's obvious to everybody looking at it. So when you're doubting whether someone has repentance, repented, that means they haven't repented. And, and so... Um, uh, Godly repentance, and that's what it looks like. So back in, uh, back there in, uh, in Second in Samuel, uh, in Second Samuel chapter twelve, I think it's important to um, to to read through quickly the the rest of of the chapter here. Um, He's told that his, his, his son is going to die. Nathan departs to his house, verse 15, and says, The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of the house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, it came to pass, verse 18, that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. In other words, um, while he was fasting, uh, you know, David was basically prostrating the floor, wasn't paying attention to anyone who came into the room. And they're um, they're. Uh, worried that he's going to freak out if they tell him he's the child is dead. Verse 19, when David saw that his servants were whispering, David per perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house and worshipped. 
Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then a servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And David said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Very quick little rabbit trail here. Uh, this verse, among others, is evidence that children who die prior to the age of accountability go straight to heaven. Uh, that's part of another sermon for another day, um, day but um, that is, among other places, uh, that's um, one of the places that that uh, doctrine is, is, is taught. No, uh, no need, particularly if you're a believing parent, but I believe even for unbelieving parents, um, a child goes to heaven. And so um, 1 Corinthians 7, there's other places that deal with that issue. But verse 24 says, Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. Now the Lord loved him. And he sent word by the hand of Nathan, the prophet. So he called his name Jedidah because of the Lord. Verse 26. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah and I have taken the city's water supply. Now, therefore, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and be called after and it be called after my name in other words look if i finish up the the victory in this in this war they're going to be naming these cities after me and i'm not the king you are so joab here acts very honorably um verse 29 david gathered all the people together and went to rabba fought against it and took it then he took their he took their king's crown from his head its weight was a town of gold with precious stones, and it was set on David's head. Also, he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance, and he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over the brick, over to the brick works. So he did to all the cities of people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So what does godly repentance look like? I'm going to finish with this. I know we've gone a long time today. Thank you for your patience. Really, really important Calvary Chapel. Godly repentance, you accept forgiveness. You accept forgiveness. What is, David had been told that his sin had been put away. He had been told that. He had been forgiven. And what does he do? When the baby dies, he, he gets up, he... he um, washes and anoints himself. He changes his clothes. He, 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 and then he goes to the house of the Lord to worship. In other words, he doesn't mope about for the rest of his life, not taking care of himself, inflicting self-punishment because of a sin that has been forgiven. And then it says he ate food. And then just as important, it says that he went out to war. Should have done that in the first place. Wouldn't have sinned with Bathsheba if he had done that. In other words, he continued the, the calling that God had called him to. He didn't say, I can never serve the God again. I did this terrible thing. And he doesn't become a recluse. You know, some people sin uh, in a pretty serious way. Then when they're found out, they're quick to change churches. So I can't live with the shame. That's not godly repentance. <laughs> it, it, it's, it doesn't mean there are not opportunities. It's not. It doesn't mean there. That's not maybe they, they can't otherwise ninety percent godly repent. But that's not full godly repentance. You know, running away. He doesn't do that. He stays with his people. He serves them. He even goes out to war. And and speaking again of something that's very discouraging. And 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 I would say d discouraging. It's also wearying. Very wearing. You want to you know how not to weary your pastor? Don't go to your pastor and be bemoaning a sin that's long been forgiven 
but just uh, telling your pastor you really can't walk with God because the sin that you did way yonder in the past. Uh, that's good. That wearies me and it discourages me. You, and not only that, it really is an insult to the blood of Jesus who has covered all your sins. It's like telling Jesus everything that you went through is not enough. I need to keep on doing my own penance. I need to keep on uh, punishing myself, even though you got punished for me. Jesus said the last thing he said on the cross was what? It is finished. What was finished? Every punishment that was needed for him to cover your sin, among other things. And so, um, uh, so important here, godly repentance that David accepts forgiveness. 